0: Second Kings 15. We're tracing the godly and the ungodly kings of Israel and Judah as we go through the book of Kings. That's why it's called Kings. Um, it shows that the degree to which each of these kings either kept the covenant or didn't based on the standard of David. So David wasn't a perfect guy, but his heart was directed towards the Lord God Almighty. And we've had king after king after king that kind of failed to live up to that standard in a variety of ways. So you can look at the book of Kings as like a composite sample of how to screw up life. And each of these kings gets an epitaph at the end of their um, reign as to if they followed the Lord God Almighty, if they didn't, if they cheated on on how they did worship in the sins of Jeroboam, or if they flat out went to worshiping other things, the sins of Ahab so far. And Judah in that line has been fairly consistently following the Lord's path and worshiping the way the Lord told them to worship. So Judah has had a lot less trouble than the northern kingdom. So as we get in tonight, that's kind of where we pick up. Amaziah leaves Judah in a mess for the first time. So Judah has, hasn't had a lot of struggles, they haven't had a lot of problems, but Amaziah kind of goes off in his own direction, and so we come to Jerusalem in, in chapter 15. The wall of the city has been tore down, they've taken hostages from the southern kingdom, some of the treasures have been stolen from the temple, and that's where we pick up uh, in chapter 15. And The 27th year of Jeroboam, the king of Israel, Azariah, the son of Amaziah, king of Judah, becomes king. This guy is otherwise known as Uzziah. So again, we're starting to see some, as we get more and more current, the history's you know, use different kinds of names like with Joash. So when you see Azariah, that's interchangeable with Uzziah. It's just a spelling difference or a slight pronunciation difference. Verse two, he was 16 years old when he became king and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done, except that the high places were not removed, and the people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. So we uh, we keep seeing these high places be an issue as we read over those. Sometimes it it's easy to just because we've seen it so often, we forget how bad these places were. They were party centers. You go to the high places on the weekend, get loaded and drunk. And, and it, they were places to go do that. It's why they call them the high places. And so the Kings that leave them in place, leave them in place because the people are going to those places. And if you shut them down, you got a bunch of angry people because you've taken away that atmosphere where they could go and not worry about God's law at all for a night of the week. So you got Zechariah, the prophet is in Judah during this time. He's warning Judah to clean up these places. It's not that the Kings haven't been warned. God has continued to send prophets to go to these folks. Second Chronicles 26 records that overall Uzziah's reign was pretty prosperous. He did strengthen Judah. He rebuilt the defenses during this time. Um, but as from the book of Kings, they just kind of moved past Uzziah. Here's another compromised king from, a, from an internal perspective. Everything that he did that was successful in the world's eyes just doesn't matter when it comes to the record of the spiritual history of Israel. You know, just another king. And he didn't do what he was supposed to do. Then the Lord struck the king so that he was a leper until the day of his death. So he dwelt in an isolated house. And Jotham, the king's son, was over the royal house, judging the people of the land. Now the rest of the acts of Azariah, Uzziah, and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? So Azariah rested with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in the city of David. Then Jotham, his son, reigned in his place. Uzziah crosses the line. And, um, and he gets this leprosy. Second Chronicles 26 tells that whole story. Kings doesn't, so I'm just going to skip past it. Um, and we'll stick to what Kings is saying and, and what's in this chapter. Um, so uh, his the year Uzziah dies is the same year, by the way, that Isaiah sees the Lord seated on his throne, high and lifted up. It's interesting that we have some of these kind of things. And real quick... Before we move on to Zechariah, Isaiah 6, 1, in the year that Uzziah died, which is where we're at in Kings, I saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and lifted up. His train filled the temple with glory. Isaiah sees... The mess that is becoming the spiritual life of Judah, but he still sees God on the throne, and he proclaims it and actually brings that as the message. Um, We have another instance of leprosy. Leprosy has affected Miriam because of her defiance against Moses. Gehazi, because he tried to swindle the... Naaman as he came to get his leprosy healed and now we have a third person that gets leprosy only in Kings they just assume that we know at this point that when God gives leprosy that that's a curse so we don't get to know exactly what Uzziah did here but we do know and they do tell us that clearly he had some issues with the Lord that he didn't listen to Um, so a strong king but again not the Messiah so moving on Uh, Next, we get a series of five kings in the northern kingdom. Because Uzziah lasted so long, 52 years, we're going to crank through some northern kings. But in the south, there's just one guy that's sitting on the throne. We have a descending chaos in the northern kingdom. It's getting worse and worse and worse. So Zechariah, verse 8, in the 38th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Zechariah, the son of Jeroboam, reigned over Israel and Samaria six months And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. It's amazing. He's only on the throne for six months, but that's how they sum him up. As his fathers had done, he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, false worship, and the sons of Nebat, who made Israel sin. Then Shalom, the son of Jabesh, conspired against him and struck and killed him in front of the people. Like, this was a very public killing, so he must have been very unpopular. And he reigned in his place, and now the rest of the acts of Zechariah, indeed, They're written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. This was the word of the Lord, which he spoke to Jehu, saying, Your sons shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. And so it was. Jehu did a couple things right at the beginning of his reign. God said, I'm going to give you a four-generation dynasty. And the writer in verse 12 is pointing out to us, the readers, that's exactly what happened. Prophecy was met precisely as it always is. So they killed him in front of the people. Uh, implying that he was despised. Uh, And we have just, now we have regicide going on in the northern kingdom. Um, They've had now years of just chaos. They've had a rise in this kind of ineffective rule from kings, and now we're just getting kind of mass factions and hatred and chaos, and the wickedness just goes on. Verse 12, we see the fulfillment of the prophecy, and then we get to Shalom. Shalom the son of Jabesh became king in the 39th year of Uzziah, the king of Judah, and he reigned a full month in Samaria. Woo, a one month reign. Uh, for Menahem the son of Gadi went up from Tirzah, came to Samaria, and struck Shalom the son of Jabesh in Samaria and killed him, and he reigned in his place. So anybody who's strong enough just walks up to Samaria, kills the king, and says, I'm king and they kind of just assume that they're in charge. Basically, anybody that can kill him claims the throne. Now the rest of the acts of Shalom and the conspiracy which he led, indeed, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. Another not-blessed king, not even worth talking about. We don't even get the summary after a month. doesn't warrant the normal cadence of the book. Menahem. Then from Tirzah, Menahem attacked Tipsha, all who were there in its territory because they did not surrender, therefore he attacked it. All the women there who were with child he ripped open. So we get a note on the viciousness and cruelty of this king. This is why these northern kings weren't lasting long. Uh, None of this pleases God or keeps his law. That's the whole point. Um, This kind of action and this kind of behavior is not being blessed by God. And remember, when it comes to the northern kingdom, as the prophets start to migrate away from the northern kingdom, the blessing leaves too. And so Israel looks exactly like the other nations around them that do this. You want to destroy a city, you want to hurt a people, you actually go ahead and you attack the women. And so this is just a brutality of fear and power and dominion that is what Aram does, Ammon does that. We have record especially of this growing empire called Assyria that does that sort of thing too. So... Then we get to verse 17. In the 39th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Menahem, the son of Gadi, became king over Israel. He reigned 10 years in Samaria. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart all his days from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. And so here we see the first interaction um, coming up with Assyria. Assyria is going to be, really since the flood, the first empire to try to unite the world under one ruler. And so Assyria is a really interesting empire. Historically, if you like history and you like studying nations, Syria was a threat, but they were more of a tribal threat. They would take a city or two, collect some taxes and kind of stick to their own territory. Assyria has a very different idea. And that is the idea of world domination. And we'll, we'll get into that a little bit, but here's the reference. Verse 19, Paul, the king of Assyria came against the land, He didn't just attack cities or raid. He came against the land itself. And Menahem gave Pol a thousand talents of silver that his hand might be with him to strengthen the kingdom under his control. And Menahem exacted the money from Israel and all the very wealthy from each man, 50 shekels of silver to give to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria turned back and did not stay there in the land. This makes the northern kingdom a vassal state. Now they're losing sovereignty so they have to give it away. We don't get too upset that he's taking from the wealthy here because if you look at the profits They do reference how in this particular era in the Northern Kingdom, the wealthy were taking advantage of the poor and extending way past God's law. They were ignoring Jubilee. They were ignoring the ability to buy yourself out of slavery. So the Northern Kingdom looks just like every other nation. And so this is a consequence that's unique to the wealthy, um, but it's also taking away the sovereignty. Menahem's not in charge anymore. Um, So... They never get up from this. Assyria never lets you go. When Assyria steps into the picture, their first step is to make you pay homage. Then they move in their advisors. And as their advisors figure out the royal court of that country, then they figure out who they need to kill and who they need to keep. And eventually then they just kill out the leadership, put their own leadership in, and then they start doing transports, which we'll talk about as it happens. But that's their how they operated in history. It's how they conquered countries. So taking the money at first, then they need to, they put their own tax collectors in the country and in the court of the king. Now the rest of the acts of Menahem and all that they, all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? So Menahem rested with his fathers and then Pekahiah, his son reigned in his place. Of course, You don't reign in the northern kingdom without the approval of Assyria. So he's like a puppet leader at this point. So Pekahiah only gets to rule because Pool, the Assyrian king, approves of it. And so that's the protection that was paid for. And in, in this sense, like Menahem actually sees his son sit on the throne because he's paid for that luxury. Pekahiah reigns in Israel is the 50th year of Azariah, king of Judah. Pekahiah, the son of Menahem, became king over Samar- Israel in Samaria. He reigned for two years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the sons of Nebat, who had made Israel descend. Do notice after we've gone through five kings here, we don't see people doing the sins of Ahab anymore. I think this is good because Ahab was the Baal worship. And so very, since Elijah did the thing on the mountain where he challenged the priests of Baal, the worship of Baal seems to just kind of be dead. And what's remaining is this Samaritan worship of Yahweh, but it's not how God instructed for it to happen. So it's kind of this mixed religion, like we're Jewish people, but we're Jewish people that do it our own way. And this is why they were so hated by the time we get to Jesus's day. The Samaritans were just that city. So its false worship continues on, but the ball worship is just gone. So where am I? Verse 25. Then Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, an officer of his conspired against him and killed him in Samaria in the citadel, citadel of the king's house, along with Argob and Ariah, who with him were 50 men of Gilead. He killed him and reigned in his place, and now the rest of the acts of Pekahiah, and all that he did, indeed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel. So at this point, it's almost like the authors, are they're just moving through the kings here. Like, none of these guys matter. Like, at this point, God's left the northern kingdom we know this isn't the line of the Messiah, but we're going to follow it through to the end because the end is coming soon. Pekah reigns in Israel, 50, 27, verse 27. In the 52nd year of Azariah, king of Judah, this would be the last year of his reign, Pekah, the son of Remaliah, became king over Israel and Samaria, reigned 20 years, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nepat, who made Israel sin. New face, same sin, new family, same sin, keeps continuing. It doesn't really matter who sits on the throne. They have an inept spiritual life in the northern kingdom. Verse 29. In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, Tilgath Pileser, the king of Assyria, came and took Aizhan. So now Assyria has switched from Pool to Tilgath Pileser. A new king steps in. New king steps in, he has slightly new policies. Now they're not just taking an homage or a money from the northern kingdom. Now they're actually taking cities from the northern kingdom. Ajon, Abel, Bethmaaka, Genoa, Kadesh, Hazor, Gilead, and Galilee, and all the land of Naphtali. And he carried them captive to Assyria. So this is the beginning of the end. Assyria is done with tribute. Now they're just taking ownership. And here's how Assyria does this. Um, note that when we see these nations going away, these are the two-and-a-half tribes that were on the east side of the Jordan. So Reuben, Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh, gone. And so they're the first tribes that actually get overtaken, 1 Chronicles 5.26 does point this out. The God of Israel stirred up the spirit of Pool, king of Assyria, and the spirit of tilgath pilneser of Assyria, and he carried them away, even the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and brought them to Hala and Harbor and Hara, and the river Gozan unto this day. So what Assyria does is it takes a conquered people, and if you leave them there, they'll rebel against you eventually. So they would pick up people... They would do this really cruelly because they would chain you all together in big, long lines, and they would chain people through their noses, typically speaking, and you'd walk in a line to the opposite side of the Assyrian empire. And they'd relocate you in a city where you, had, you didn't speak the language, you didn't know the culture, you're completely apart, and they would take you in small little groups. The idea is they wanted to erase your culture, so you became Assyrian within a generation. So they would bring you in, they'd haul you to the other side of the empire, and they'd leave you there. This we haven't seen on the planet yet. So the cruelty of how they did this was absolutely devastating to people. On the other hand, those people never were able to gather in numbers to rebel. So the dominion of Assyria was total and complete. Then they would take people from those other cities on that side of the empire, and they would march them by nose chain all the way down to these cities they just conquered, So they'd fill these cities with people that wouldn't even speak the same language as the next city over. So they couldn't gather and build armies. And so this was a strategy they used when it says that they carried them captive in verse 29. That's what they're talking about. Divide and conquer is an Assyrian kind of thing. What's left of Israel after losing these cities, notice like Galilee, one word, that's a whole region. That's not just a city. So when they lost these areas, what's left of the Northern Kingdom is a space of about 30 miles by 40 miles, roughly speaking by Google Maps. So we're really talking about an area that's not much bigger than the metro area of the Twin Cities. Like there's not much of a country left here. Uh, It's filled with other conquered people, not Jewish people. So even as you look at the Northern Kingdom being conquered this way, again, this is part of why the Jews really didn't like the Samaritans, because they weren't Jewish, but they would take on whatever was there. So you had these weird melting pot of religions that would happen in the Assyrian Empire. It's how they operated. And we'll get into that in a sec too. The setting of Samaria then is now becoming a mostly Gentile city with some Jewish traditions left over from the sins of Jeroboam. We're so many steps past what God intended. It's barely even Jewish anymore. Verse 30, then Hosea the son of Elah, led a conspiracy against Pekah, the son of Remaliah, and struck and killed him. So he reigned in his place in the 20th year of Jotham, the son of Uzziah. More turmoil, no revival, the nation's gotten warnings, they've gotten periods of peace. They're so numb to evil at this point, they don't even know what good looks like. And they're, they're absolutely blind to it. Pekah's reputation is that of a killer, he dies by getting killed. Verse 31, now the rest of the acts of Pekah and all that he did, indeed, they're written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel. It's at this point, let's not lose sight of the fact, it's been about 200 years for the northern kingdom that God has given them mercy and a chance to make this king thing work. 200 years. And it hasn't worked. So he's blessed them, he's pulled away blessing. In verse 32, we go back to Judah, where is the hope of the Messiah is now firmly residing. Verse 32, second year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel. Joth, Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jerusha, the daughter of Zadok. Um, Joth, Jotham's name is Jehovah's perfect. And I, and I read some of those interpretations sometimes, because what you see in that name is at least Jotham's parents, we're giving homage to the Lord in naming their children. And so we don't see that as much in the northern kingdom. Um, and his actions are actually, he's a pretty solid king. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, verse 34. That's the definition. Either they do what's right in the eyes of the Lord, or they do what's wrong, or they do what's evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did according to all that his father Uzziah had done. So Uzziah was a solid king, especially in a worldly sense. He had a, Remember, he built Elath. He built them a trade city on the Red Sea. So as Jotham takes over, he's been well-raised. And as he takes over at age 25... Like his dad has taught him how to do this. And so he continues in the same sense that he's been taught. He builds up the civic structure. Judah starts to build their defenses, in part because they've been attacked by northern Israel at this point. So they're starting to think more about trade, defenses, civic structure. And we see the influence of Uzziah on his son. Jotham became mighty because he prepared his ways before the Lord of God, 2 Chronicles twenty seven six. Here's what else we know about Jotham. When he made decisions, he put them before the priests at the temple, which is what kings were supposed to do. So in all of his ways, when he made plans, he did it in concert with the priests. And so Jotham accepts the counsel of the priesthood, which is generally good practice. And the rule of God's word is constant and is is in complete contrast to what's going on in the northern kingdom. So if you want to be with the people of God at this period in history, you pick up your stuff and you go move to Judah. And I think, this is my theory, the Bible doesn't say this, I think that, remember we saw the sons of the prophets all popping up and Elijah went down to the Jordan and he stopped in at all these little schools that he had helped to found and Elisha took over those schools, the prophets, and out of the sons of the prophets we saw Jonah take over after Elisha And we see Amos and Hosea pop up in the northern kingdom. But we just went through five kings. No record of any prophet talking to those kings. What we do get, though, is we start to see a bunch of prophets pop up in Judah during this time. I think the sons of the prophets picked up their stuff and moved to Judah. And so we see the prophetic voice move from both of these kingdoms to primarily now just talking to Judah. So I'm thinking after we get done with 2 Kings, we're going to do those two northern prophets before we move on to Chronicles, just so we get that context uh, where it's at. So, verse 34, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He did according to all that his father Uzziah had done. The rule of God's word here, then, is in contrast to what's going on in the northern kingdom. Verse 35, however, the high places were not removed. And and the people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. So now they're doing more than just going up there to party. Now they're going up there to party with a religious overtone to it. So the writers keep pointing out that Judah had good, pretty much godly kings that didn't do anything about the sin that was going on in their country. They were allowing it. And that's going to have an impact as we get on to the next king. Um, But we should note that before we get on to the next king, that there were a few generations of otherwise good kings that allowed the evil to continue to fester in the country. And then it has, it it comes around with the next king where it becomes a major problem for Judah, just like it did for the Northern Kingdom. Uh, He built the upper gate of the house of the Lord. Another good aspect, uh, keeps some attention on building up the temple and taking care of it. Uh, The upper gate is the path. We should note this. The upper gate of the house of the Lord was a connection point. It gets taken down here soon. But between the king's palace and the temple... They added a gate between there, so the king would have a direct connection. So if Jotham's making every decision and bringing it to the priests and saying, hey, what do you think? Where's the Urum and the Thummim? Let's make a decision. He wanted a quick connection between the palace and the temple. So he built one, and he puts it in there. It, it, It won't last very long, but we should think of Judah as a fairly good king that tried to do what the Lord was asking. Um, verse 36, now the rest of the acts of Jotham and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the Kings of Judah? In those days, the Lord began to send reason, the King of Syria and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah against Judah. This is why they built up their defenses because now they have to defend themselves. At this point, the evil of the Northern kingdom is now partnering with Syria. We didn't get that peace when they were doing the Northern Kings. Um, and in verse 37, it says in those days, And after this, they say, are they not written, separating it from Jotham's rule? It's kind of interesting. The rest of the acts of Jotham and all that they did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles? Verse 36. Okay, that's usually the end of a king, right? We've seen that refrain keep coming back. In 37, it says, in those days, the summary of the king's life is given first. And the negative or the sinful thing that's happening is given second. And so this is a different structure. And I think what they were doing, and we can talk about this if you got other thoughts. I think what they're saying is the fact that Rezin and Pekka are coming against this Judah isn't Jotham's fault. Like, he didn't earn this. It's not coming because the Lord sent it. And we've seen that phrased as part of a kingship that the Lord tried to send warnings. In this case, they're just dealing with evil on their border. And it's not necessarily part of Jotham's reign that that's happening. It's part of what's going on in the northern kingdom. So really, it's a knock against the northern kingdom, uh, which they're not only sinful, but now they're aiding and partnering with the enemy. Not only are they aiding the enemy, Syria, but now they're making, they're, now they're a threat to the line of David. So God has left the northern kingdom be, but at this point, I think v- verse 37 is a turning point for the Lord because now he's seeing, oh, the northern kingdom's not just lost in sin, like I've left, I've left my blessing from them. Now they're a threat to the line of David. And the promises of God then become, are under assault by the Northern kingdom. And God's going to end the Northern kingdom rather than see that threat continue. Uh, So I wonder if God allowed the Northern kingdom to, if they hadn't attacked Judah, if they would have lasted another five, six, seven kings before God ended them. But they start to attack the Southern kingdom. And 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 it's just, this is going to be the end of the Northern kingdom. Verse 38. So Jotham rested with his fathers and was buried with his father, fathers in the city of David, his father. And then Ahaz, his son reigned in his place. I don't know if there's any connection between Ahab and Ahaz and that the names are so similar. There's probably an off color joke in there somewhere. uh, but I think it's just coincidence in this case in the 17th year, uh, chapter 16 in the 17th year of Pekah the son of Remaliah, Ahaz the son of Jotham king of Judah began to reign Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem and he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God as his father David had done they're going all the way back to David so this is the setup for the worst king that Judah is going to have he's the worst and that's what we get to study tonight. So we'll dig into that. Ahaz means grasper or possessor. He's he who grasped, he who, who clings to things. Uh, here's the other thing with the word Ahaz. Not only does it mean a possessor in the Hebrew, it's also a root word in the Assyrian. So it, he's taking a name that was a, a, a name that was used by the Assyrians. And that's the name that he is given by his otherwise godly father. So it's kind of an odd name for him to take. And you wonder if Jotham named him that or something else. So anyways, there it is. He's 20 years old. Isaiah 3, 4 says, I will give children to be their princes and babes shall rule over them. This is the third generation of Judah kings that have started their kingship in their teens or twenties. Right? One of the things that God said is when I start to lift my hand, when I'm trying to warn you as a nation, you're going to get either doddering old fools In the kingship, or you're going to get young men that don't know what they're doing. And so it's one of the ways God speaks to a nation. Said during this time is when Isaiah wrote that sentence. So he's probably thinking of Ahaz. uh, Jotham's only 41 when he dies leaving a fairly young king, like he should be living to at least his mid fifties for an average lifespan. He should have about another 10 years to train in. And maybe Ahaz would have been a better king if he had more discipleship, more training. Um, But we see here that the Southern Kingdom's starting to get some warnings from God in both of those ways. However you read into that, Uh, he did not do what was right. That's about the worst thing that King says about a king. They don't do what's right. Some people wonder if they're right with God. And I think it's interesting that the way we see the judgment being passed in the Old Testament is either you do the things that are right or you do the things that are wrong. It doesn't speak about temptations. It speaks about actions. Either you live rightly or you don't live rightly. And that should be a pretty clear line. So it also uses a phrase here. It usually says it did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord. This is the first instance where it adds his God after that. Um, didn't do what was right in the sight of the Lord is, is used 19 times in the book of Kings. In this particular passage, it adds his God. And, and one question is why? And I think it's because even though Ahaz forsakes God, he still belongs to God. And his forsaking it hasn't changed the covenant that God has made with the line of David. And so, it doesn't matter what Ahaz's decision is, he has an obligation to his God that he's denying and and rejecting. So, it says, as his father, David. David's not his actual father. We know that if we've read the book. But there is this idea that, spiritually speaking, um, David had some problems, and David did some things wrong. So, he did did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord, his God as his father David had done. So this isn't a positive comparison to David. What did David do wrong? And we immediately think Bathsheba, right? We immediately think the killing of Bathsheba's husband. Um, There were other things, if you remember, that 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 the Book of Kings held David account to. One was he sat behind and let other people fight his battles when he should have been out in front of his army. Another was that he was passive in his leadership and he didn't handle sin when he should have. And so those things built up to a problem of infidelity and killing husbands and things like that and lying. But there were other things that David did that that perhaps weren't even recorded. But when you look at the book of Kings, what David did wrong is he stopped leading in a godly way. Stopped doing what was right in the sight of the Lord, which led him to Bathsheba. And so when it says he sinned and he didn't do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God, perhaps part of Ahaz's problem here is it's going to get worse in verse 3. But at least in this sense, he didn't lead as a righteous leader of the nation. He didn't show people the right way to go. So in some ways, it took the northern kingdom, multiple kings to slowly and progressively do what was wrong. Ahaz is like, I'm going to catch up to all of them at once. And he not only catches up, he goes way past what the northern kingdom did. Verse 3, but he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, so he matched the northern kingdom. Indeed, he made his son pass through the fire. Whoa, stepping way past it. According to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel, and he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. Not only did he allow the high places to continue, he joined them. So he wasn't a, a model of what he, people should be like. Uh, he didn't respect his position at all. In the way of the kings of Israel, um, that idol worship just comes in full force. To pass through the fire. I think we've talked about this before, and I hate talking about this. But they're pointing it out. To make your child pass through the fire, there's, this is wrong in so many ways. First of all, child sacrifice is evil. God says it's evil. You don't kill your children. Unwanted children getting killed is not God's plan for humanity. Leviticus 18, 21. Don't believe my word for it. It's right here. You shall not let any of your descendants pass through the fire to Moloch, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. If God puts his image on every human being, it is not another human being's job to take that life without judicial process. So this idea that you profane the name of the, your God when you do this, God has a heart for children. He created them. He knit them together in their mother's womb. And it, for humans to choose to pass them off is not okay. So it's profane in that sense. Moloch statues were made of metal. They were heated red hot. And when the hands of the Moloch statue were red hot and blazing, that's when they would put the baby in the hands. Not only that, The Moloch worship of this period of time, they would even put up to 10-year-old children in the hands of Moloch. And what they would do is they would turn up the music so loud, they'd crank their Behringer amps so loud that you couldn't hear the kids screaming anymore. So just to deafen out the noise. So that idea that we're going to do what we want to do, the chanting would, would be louder than the kid. And to the godly person, this sounds horrible to the ungodly person it's like they're already so deceived that they come up with ways to make this right and that hasn't changed at all sin isn't born out of nothing Uzziah allowed the high places to continue and now Judah's reaping the benefits of that you allow sin to stick in your life long enough you'll pay the price it will come and get you so Leviticus 18:19 don't look at naked women this is the same passage I just read the kid thing from. Verse 20, don't sleep around. Verse 21, don't abort the resulting children. The verse I just read. Verse 22, don't sleep with people of the same sex. Verse 21, don't sleep with animals. You think it gets worse? It does. And when you see those laws in Leviticus pro- progressively built up like that, and then we read through the book of Kings, how long ago did we see kings looking at naked women? David. And he's following in the sins of David. Maybe that's another way to read that passage. That is simply a continuation. And these kin- they keep building. Don't sleep around. How many kings have we seen doing that? Solomon slept around worse than any one of them. And you justify sleeping around. And the idea of killing children is born out of a culture where sleeping around is okay. It's a convenient solution to the resulting children. If you live in a culture where killing the children becomes naturalized or okay, the next step is the rise of homosexuality, which God says isn't okay. When that becomes normalized, the next step for a culture is to normalize having sex with animals. And you're like, oh, that could never happen. It does. It continues to happen. History just cycles over and over and over again. Leviticus 18, 24, do not defile yourself with any of these things for by all of these things, the nations are defiled. The nations are defiled. This is laws for nations which I am casting out before you. In other words, this is what the Canaanites were doing. It's why they got kicked out of Israel. And it's going to be, if God left the Israelites alone after doing the same things the Canaanites did, then you get to judgment day and the Canaanites are like, Hey, you punished us for something that you never bothered to punish these folks for. It would be unjust for God to leave the Israelites alone. So the consequences here they've earned them Le- Leviticus 18:25 The land is defiled therefore I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it and the land vomits out the inhabitants. God warned them it would happen. He sends prophets to tell them it's going to happen and it happens again and again and again. I have to add this, this is my own commentary. The United States has a $1 billion a year industry called abortion. In any given year, we have five hundred to 800,000 abortions in this country. Every one of them costs money. So it's a massive industry. People profit off this industry. So when there's a battle going on over something like that, and we fight that battle from a moral position, we're fighting against an economic benefit for a lot of people that are going to fight for that economic benefit. So understand the spiritual battle here. It's evil and it's flat out evil. The Bible doesn't debate this idea. It's not uh, let's have a let's have a five-point pro and con discussion. For the Bible, abortion's just wrong at every single level. And they're commanded to not do this because it's not your role to kill a child ever. Uh so ultimately, this is done in self-worship. Here's the thing that's even worse for Ahaz. In killing one of his children for Moloch, he's killing a potential Messiah because Messiah was promised through the line of Judah. So he has a special responsibility in that through his seed, there is a Messiah being planned. So the evil that's here, the spiritual level of evil is not just the evil of killing children. It's the attempt to eliminate the line of David in the history of the world. There's absolutely a satanic influence on Ahaz. So he's, he's doing this idea, putting the human will over the will of God. And that's essentially what all of child killing is. I'm more important than God's plan for this kid. And that, that decision gets made and, and there's, it can't be made any stronger. Uh, verse 3 then in this chapter, under God's law, Leviticus 23, that's a death sentence for Ahaz. He deserves death for what he's done. Uh, it's a national judgment too, based on the verses I just read. It's a judgment on Judah. So when we read that, if we know the Torah, we're supposed to read that as, ooh, they're in trouble. Like, you did that, verse 3, he crossed the line. Verse 4, and he sacrificed. He didn't just allow them to do their sin. I think, frankly, that's an attitude of a lot of Christians. I'll do Jesus, you do your sin. But when you're in a position of leadership and government, and your job is to pass the laws of the land, Ahaz's responsibility was to not pass laws that allowed the high places. He was supposed to eliminate them. And it's not just anybody's job to go in and start riping things out, but it was his job to do that. So when he actually goes and starts, he's not an example to Judah of what a righteous person looks like. Now he's an example of sin to Judah. He's flipped that thing. He burns incense there. Incense is always an image of prayer. He's actually praying to the false gods. Ahaz is sacrificing and praying to gods that aren't Yahweh. So, generationally, this permissiveness is now leading to an an Ahaz that has progressively defiled the land of Judah. And God has to deal with that. This is a really interesting thing, and I I think we'll get into this later, but if they didn't give the land rest, Jubilee, God said that, I'm going to take that back. So, part of when they're sent off to Babylon... And they're kicked, they're vomited out of the land. God's actually giving the land rest from the Israelites. The land gets a break from them. And so it's really interesting how this gets framed and how the curse of this sin is not just the human beings, the land itself carries the curse. So it's just kind of an interesting thing. That said, we see Judah cross the line. They don't just cross it. They leap over it, and uh, they go full on into Moloch worship. The Moloch worship's going to continue until King Josiah shows up and destroys it in chapter 23. So this is something that's just going to be a plague for the southern kingdom. Child sacrifice, however, continues right up until today, and it's never really left the planet Earth. Verse 5. Then Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, came to Jerusalem to make war, and they besieged Ahaz, but could not overcome him. At that time, Rezin, the king of Syria, captured Elath for Syria. Remember Uzziah built that city. They captured it for Syria, and they drove the men of Judah from Elath, and then the Edomites went to Elath to dwell there to this day. They just handed it to the Edomites. Here's a new city for you. So they come in, and now they've got basically Judah's getting surrounded. Elah's on the far southern tip of Israel. So they have completely surrounded the land and cut them off from trade. Ahaz is then a strong king in a sinful way, but he's also losing the strength that had been built up over the last two kingships. Uh, the story of Elath going down, there were massive losses to Israel in that. Second Chronicles 28. And In 2 Chronicles 28, they tell us it's because of the defiant spirit of Ahaz and that the Lord allows that to happen because of who he is. God is giving them warnings because he's merciful and he's trying to allow them time to repent um, and he is faithful in sending warnings. So it says that they couldn't overcome him. When sinners fight against sinners, it's not necessarily that Ahaz is being blessed when he wins this battle or defends himself. I I think when sinners fight sinners, it it has nothing to do with God's plan. So in Ahaz not being overwhelmed and killed, I think the Lord's protecting the line of David more than anything else here. And that Ahaz can't go down and and all his kids be killed because that would kill that line. Verse 7, so Ahaz sent messengers to Tilgath-Pileasar, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant. Just bowing down. Okay, notice that Syria and the northern kingdom attacked him, but then Ahaz sends a message to Assyria. So he sneaks a spy through the lines, and he talks to the kingdom that's north of the northern kingdom and Syria. And so he's saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. That's not true. Um, But in this case, it's what he does. He says, I'm your servant and your son. That's extreme come up and save me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who rise up against me. And Ahaz took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house and sent it as a present to the king of Assyria. Assyria doesn't even have to demand the money. They just get it. So the king of Assyria heeded him for the king of Assyria went up against Damascus and took it and carried its people captive to Kerr and killed Rezin. They, They do the thing where they... They relocate the Syrians. So at this point, the the Syrian empire tradition and culture totally wiped out. There's no more Syria left on the planet. We still have a country called Syria, but it's largely populated by what we call us Syrians. And so they're gone. It's interesting here that Ahaz says the kind of thing that if he would have taken that much passion and given it to the Lord, what would be different about the nation? Like, what a different path they would take if he said, Lord, I'm your servant, I'm your son, here's all the wealth and resources I have. And Like, he trades the minnow of northern Israel for the shark of Assyria, and he thinks this is a good move. And it's all he's doing with the Assyrians is telling them, I got money, and and this might be a valuable land for you to conquer. That's really all that, that results from this. Um, so 1529 is the same Assyrian conquest Syrians gone. Isaiah um, wants uh, against this move, or uh, Isaiah warns against this move strongly. Ahaz ignores God's promises. So Isaiah warns the house of David. I think it's interesting that we're concerned about the house of David, which means we're concerned with the Messiahship in Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah 7 4 says, And say to him, Take heed and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted for these two stubs of the smoking firebrands, Syria and the Northern Kingdom, for the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Remaliah. Doesn't even use his name. Like Pica is not worth mentioning. <laughs> God's not going to allow those people to wipe out Judah. Don't be afraid of them. Isaiah 7, 7, thus says the Lord, it shall not stand, neither shall it come to pass. Isaiah told Ahaz, you don't have to worry about these two. God's going to take care of them. But in defiance of that, he sends all the wealth of the temple and all the wealth of the king's house. That wasn't his wealth to give. The wealth of the king's house is what sustains your treasuries. So the king's house is the governmental, the civic money. It's what guarantees the coins in the pockets of everybody in Judah. So you have a leader here that's handing off the financial benefits of a nation out of fear. It's what he does here. It doesn't just hurt Ahaz. It, it hurts everybody in the country because this would collapse the economy. So the money that's in the house of David wasn't just for Ahaz to go on a spending spree, with. it really was the thing that protects the standard of money in that country. So you have him handing away money like it's like it's his to hand out instead of a generational thing that was his his to give to his son and to keep in the house of David. So all that wealth is gone. God tells Ahaz to ask for a sign and Ahaz refuses to ask for a sign from God. And then God turns around on him. And I love this. And God says, you know what? You're going to get a sign Ahaz. So this is Isaiah talking to Ahaz but the Lord speaking through Isaiah. Isaiah 7:14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. You know what? You're going to get a sign. Here's your sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And his name shall be called Emmanuel. What's Emmanuel mean? God is with, God us. with us. You can't go making this deal with Assyria? God's with you. Don't you know that? What's interesting and I think prophecy works this way. The idea, when, when, when Ahaz heard this, I don't think he's actually thinking like a virgin birth. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. That means that there will be nine months, right? That's the time it takes for a son to be made. So you could read this in the immediate time and say, The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and she'll call his name Emmanuel. You're going to know God's with you in nine months. And you could read it that way. Syria and Israel in nine months time are absolutely wiped off the map. So I think Assyria was planning to wipe them out anyways. God had already risen them up to do this. So the focus for Ahaz wouldn't be on the virgin. It'd be this just imaginary woman giving birth. And then the other idea is that there is a coming of age of that imaginary hypothetical child. And so in 12 years... The land is going to be forsaken, and Isaiah prophesies that too. And sure enough, 12 years from this prophecy, Assyria is transporting people out and moving people in, and none of the people they move in know how to farm the land. So what happens is mass famine and devastation within the period of time that it takes for that child to come of age. Prophetically, you read the same passages, and we hear them as totally messianic. Oh no, there was actually a virgin who gave birth, and that child actually did come to age. And when that child came of age, then we, you know, we saw the world start to change. So it even makes it on our Christmas cards we love that verse so much, right? But this is the context historically where that prophecy was first given. That's what the immediate interpretation of it was, was, hey, in the time it takes for a kid to grow up in the womb, uh, you, this problem's going to go away, and you don't have to worry about it. So he gives away the treasuries of the king's house, um, and he, instead of listening to Isaiah, he just wrecks the economy of Judah. Again, Ahaz is, is the worst king ever in Judah. Now, King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tilgath Pileazar. Remember last time he sent messengers? This time he's going up himself. So he's now the servant, he's not sending servants. And he's going in to pay homage to the king of Assyria. And he saw an altar that was at Damascus. And King Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest the design of the altar and its pattern, according to all its workmanship. Then Uriah the priest built an altar according to all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Uriah the priest made it before King Ahaz came back from Damascus. So he goes up. He's going to meet with king. They're hanging out in Damascus, which was the Syrian capital, and he goes, Wow, that's a really cool-looking altar. That's trendy. It has barn wood on the sides, it looks slick, it's got LED lights. And he sends a messenger back going, Oh, you gotta build this. This altar is way better than God's altar. This one's cooler than God's altar. You should build it this way. And so he he does this and he and he sends it out and he sees this altar being used and he makes the moves to set it up. And where does he set it up? Right in the middle of the house of God. So he's defiling the temple with this stuff. Each city has a God for the Assyrians. So as they conquered countries, they believed that they believed unlike other rival nations, other rival nations had like a God per city right? This is the god of this city and the god of that city. And it was a polytheistic religion as those, those cities paired up. The greatest of the cities became the father god, like Zeus for the Greeks, right? Or Saturn for the Romans. And um, so when you're looking at all of these, Assyria was a little different in their religion. They didn't just believe each city had a god, and, it, you know, when this city gets conquered or that city conquer, this god's stronger than that god for a while. They believed in a god called Asher. So we know something about the fish god of the Ninevites, which was the capital of Assyria. Go back to the Jonah teachings if you want to hear more about that. But over the fish god in Assyrian religion was the father god called Asher. Now get this, the, the god Asher was represented by a son that had wings on it. So an icon in the middle with wings that went out on either side in horizontal lines. One of the first nations in the world to use their iconography as images, like even Israel had images for each of the tribes that went on the banners, but when Assyria conquered, there was that eagle on everything. And, it, and Asher was, it was like the sun god, or the, the sun with wings, and it was pictured in the stonework and in the carvings that they made, Asher was pictured on top of a tree of life. So it was the god of the tree of life that was the light of the sun of the world with wings on it. In Jewish tradition, we'd call that person Lucifer, straight up, and so... For the Assyrians, the idea was every god had to bow to the god of the garden, the tree of the garden, the winged sun god. And they had to pay homage or they had to be dominated by. Either way was okay with Asher. You could pay me a fee or you could just bend the knee. And either one for Asher was fine as long as you bowed to that. So Assyria becomes unique. Like when we saw the Tower of Babel, the goal was that the whole world would be part of one project. When you see Assyria rise, their religion was the whole world would bow to their empire at some point or another. They were expansionistic, and they didn't just take a city for the money. They took the city to reculture the city and turn it into their city and make it Assyrian. And this is kind of the first time we've seen anything like that since the Tower of Battle. So they use iconography, um, and this is interesting too. One of the carvings that they have, many of the carvings that they have, show this sun god, this winged eagle, over the top of other icons. And each of those icons represents another god. Um, The wheel of Shamash. The bullhorns of Apis. The crescent moon gets used for the first time as a religious symbol. And the crescent moon's god is named Sin. Actually, Sin. And and I, I think the pun's intended. Then there's the wheat sheaf of Baal. There's the fish symbol for Ishtar of Nineveh, and the priests then would wear a cross on their chest, and that cross that they wore on their chest was the all encompassing four directions of Asher. You put all those together, and you have every one of today's major world res- religions being represented in an icon that was already on Assyrian rockwork and symbols and temples. Part of what Ahaz is sending back to God's temple are probably some of those icons that were being put in place by Pilgath Tiesar as they were remodeling the altar in Damascus to look like an Asher altar. And so he's showing subservience to Assyria and he's saying, I want to take that pattern and bring it right back to the church. I want all of these gods to coexist under one happy family. And honestly, like the, when you see the rock work, I was going to put it up on the screen, but we just forgot to, uh, when you see this, if you put them in the right order, they're like the coexist bumper stickers and flat out. The only symbol that's missing is the Jewish star. Everything's also is okay, but not Yahweh. He doesn't belong in that pantheon. He needs to be wiped out. So, so Asher, you know, was the God of everything, but not Yahweh. It was one of the images that didn't come under Asher at this point in history. The crazy thing with Assyria is Assyria keeps popping up in world history. Adolf Hitler studied Assyrian torture practices. The Persians studied Assyrian torture practices and the use of images. Even Hitler's eagle that had straight lines going out from either sun, all he did is he took the sun out of the middle and put a swastika in the middle. It's the same eagle. So these images from Assyria, the evil of Asher and Assyrian religion has really had a major impact on world history. So it's kind of interesting. Not only that, Assyria has been an enemy to Israel since this time, and they have never stopped attacking and going after this country. So he sees the foreign altar, and he likes it, and he sends instructions back to build it in the middle of God's temple. It's like Ahaz is trying to tick Yahweh off. Like, it's complete defiance. But it's this idea of we can just become one of the icons under Asher. And then we can all be happy and get along with the Assyrians. But the truth is, you don't get along with the Assyrians because they don't want you to just put their bumper sticker on the car. They want you to serve them. It always goes further than the happy-go-lucky we're getting along today. And that's exactly what's going to happen historically. So, he thinks that he can upgrade God's temple And that the Assyrians are going to help him do it. And he brings what he sees out in the world and he sets it back into God's house. And God's people don't necessarily, they're not really looking for upgrades to the worship of Yahweh. But that's what Ahaz is trying to do. He's bringing the flashy stuff into God's temple. And while he's doing this, by the way, it's not that he's not getting told not to. Isaiah's book, how many chapters? 66 chapters? Mm -hmm is constant warnings, primarily to Ahaz, to knock this crap off. And he won't stop doing it. It's where we get some of the most powerful messianic passages. Don't you know, Ahaz, that Messiah is coming out of you? That your line is so much more significant? Emmanuel's coming from you. Don't you know that? And so he keeps getting reminded, and he assumes the role of priest. Verse 12, And when the king came back from Damascus, the king saw the altar and the king approached the altar and made offerings on it. Oops, he shouldn't be doing that. Uriah bears some responsibility here too. Uriah, the high priest, it's his responsibility to tell Ahaz no, and he's failing in his role as a high priest. He doesn't keep God's design and he allows the king to make offerings. He should have died before he let Ahaz do this. Like his obligation is over and above the the whims of a king. So verse 13, so he buried his burnt offering, he burned his burnt offering and his grain offering, and he poured his drink offering over the sprinkled blood of his peace offering on the altar. Weird that they're doing all the the offerings commanded in Leviticus. They're still pretending to be Jewish. And honestly, God's made it very clear if you don't do it the way he's asked you to do it, none of these offerings mean anything. They're just empty ritual. Verse 14, he brought the bronze altar, which was before the Lord, from the front of the temple, from between the new altar and the house of the Lord, and he put it on the north side of the new altar. So he pushes God's altar out of the way and frankly, out of sight. If Satan can't get Israel with a false God, he gets Israel with a Asher, an overarching God. But Satan just keeps going and he keeps trying to chip away at the holiness of Israel. Verse 15 then he has commanded Uriah the priest, saying, On the great new altar, burn the morning. He just thought it was wonderful burn the morning burnt offering and the evening grain offering and the king's burnt sacrifice and his grain offering. And with the burnt offering of all the people of the land, their grain offering and their drink offerings and sprinkle on it all of the blood of the burnt offering and all the blood of the sacrifice. In other words, do all the stuff God told you to do to sanctify an altar, do it to this altar. We're going to get into this Asher thing where all these gods can be worshiped at this altar. It's just a universalist kind of religion. And the, bro- and, and the blood sacrifice and the bronze altar shall be for me to inquire by. The king claims the old altar as his own personal altar. Like the the amount of just absolute over-the-top disrespect for God here is un, unmatched. Thus Uriah the priest, thus did Uriah the priest according to all that King Ahaz commanded. So this priest gets equal guilt in this situation. He did it. He wasn't supposed to do it. So it makes sense that if he feels he can rearrange God's plan, that he can ignore God's laws. And he does. If you can make up or change one of God's rules, it makes sense that psychologically, you'd think, oh, I can change anything I want. When you say that God's laws aren't holy, you're then saying all of God's laws are unholy. Because if you can pick and choose which ones you're going to follow or not, it becomes kind of a, a situation where that can be done any way you want to do it. You're making your own religion. In Uzziah's day, the priesthood was a check. Here, the priests seem to actually be helping. So we, we've seen Israel's priesthood start to falter. Verse 17. Verse 17. And King Ahaz cut off the panels of the carts and removed the lavers from them. And he took down the sea from the bronze oxen that were under it and put it on a pavement of stones. He's redecorating God's (laughs) plan of imagery that the temple is very carefully orchestrated to be an image of God's relationship with humanity. As he's doing this, uh, he is absolutely changing the, the imagery completely where the priests would do ritual cleansing was that sea. So this idea of the purification process is getting changed. Uh, The point of the purification at the sea, the sea was the big, huge bowl that had all the water in it. They'd bring the water up from the Gihon spring, load it up before the big feast days. So there was plenty of water on the Temple Mount. And this was the place the priests would go to wash their hands, cleanse themselves. So by altering and changing this and taking it off the backs of those oxen, uh, he's changing the imagery of the purification process. Verse 18, also, and again, in Kings, like we get the list of what they do wrong. The list is long for Ahaz. We've gotten a long list of what this guy's done. Also, he removed the Sabbath pavilion. That was a place of prayer and teaching, which they had built in the temple. And he removed the king's outer entrance. That's the thing that his dad had put there so Jotham could get back and forth. You know, it didn't last long. Ahaz takes it down. He doesn't need the connection from the house of the Lord. And on account of the king of Israel, the king's outer entrance. So it's interesting that we get this on account of the king of Israel. First, he's sending messengers to the king of Assyria with a gift asking for his help. Then he's going himself to pay homage to the king of Assyria. Now he's taking God's temple of worship and altering it on account of the king of Assyria. What does that mean? So on account is the word panim in the Hebrew. We've seen that word multiple times. It means in the face of something, before someone. And usually the word panim is used in this phrase, before the Lord. So-and-so did this panim, before the face of God. And that God was watching them. It's a term often used through the entire Torah and through the judges and through kings that the people of God do things panyim before God. And so when we see that word being used with the king of Assyria, there is a gross perversion and corruption that's happening with Ahaz. He's not worried about what God thinks of him. He's worried about what the king of Assyria thinks of him. If I can just make buddies with the bully in the classroom, then he won't be a bully anymore. But that's not true at all. What happens is you become the victim. And that's exactly what Assyria is going to do. So to do it before or Panim, the king of Assyria, means he's doing it under the supervision or under the overseeing eyes of Assyria. So they're sending in their advisors. They're getting reports back as to what he's doing. And part of what he's doing is he's bringing Asher worship into the house of God to say, we are part of Assyria. Don't attack us. And so when you try to make buddies with the enemy, the initial thing the enemy can do is make you believe that if you you do what they want you to do, that that'll be the end of it. If you just use the words we want you to use, you just put the right bumper sticker on your car, you put the right flag outside your house, then we'll leave you alone. And the reality is all they're doing is tracking who they need to worry about and who they don't. The history world has seen this kind of evil come up over and over and over again. And we humans don't seem to ever learn from this process, where you get people that want to dominate, and the tool of domination is to identify who will resist you. And under fear, you try to stop the resistance before you have to fight them. And God sometimes says, yeah, you know what? You just say no to those things. We're not going to change the house of God. We're not going to do it the way you ask us to do it. We're going to do it the way God asks us to do it. And if that means a fight, then we have the Lord on our side. Emmanuel, God is with us. He's not with you. And so the people of God are people of peace. The hobbits sing their songs and do their feasts. But eventually the orcs come. And they want more than just to be buddies. They want to eat the hobbits. And that's the thing that's going on with Assyria. They've surrounded the people of God and things are getting ugly. We need a hero at some point. And Ahaz is not that guy. So we have this idea of the complete removal of God's plan. He re- he, in 2 Chronicles 28, Ahaz actually puts pagan altars all over in the temple courtyard, and he sets them up. All of this minimizes the exclusivity of Yahweh worship in Judaism. It's just a star that goes on with the rest of the icons, And so he's minimizing God and elevating these other religions. All this is happening as a small school of students called the Sons of the Prophets are continuing to kick out people that are preaching God's word and they get louder and louder and louder. So at this time, we got Isaiah, Micah shows up. We're starting to get more and more prophets that now start speaking to Judah. It's not that Ahaz wasn't warned. He got fair warning from multiple prophets that would tell him something. They got proven as prophets and the nation strays away. And the high priest is not the one giving the voice of God to the king. That's why God raises up prophets. God doesn't need the priesthood. The priesthood needs God. And at this point, the priesthood isn't doing their job. God never, and I think this is important, God never stops speaking to them. He never stops sending messengers. He never stops blessing the people that serve and follow him. And he never stops keeping his plan moving forward. Ahaz nearly erases the worship of God from the earth. This is the closest we've gotten to to the worship of Yahweh being eliminated is the house of David itself, wiping it off the earth. So this is, this is a really close call, but God has an amazing plan when it gets super dark. God does super cool things. Historically, that's always the case in what we've seen. So God raises up Isaiah, who's one of the most prolific prophets. We call him a greater prophet because he's got a huge volumes of books, of chapters that tell us about what's going on. And some people argue Isaiah, through the sons of the prophet, had a role in raising kids. They would get kids from very young age, 12, 10 years old, and start teaching them God's word. That tradition's remained to this day. And when they've learned and they've gained the right to learn God's word and read it for themselves, they have a bar mitzvah. And that, that age of being able to be your own scholar is something that is still part of Jewish tradition. It starts during this era. And some people believe one of the kids that Isaiah is raising is the children that, I, that that Ahaz has not killed. So the king's children, the princes, are getting trained over here. So when you see this mention of prince, we read it as messianic. But when you read Isaiah, also think of the word prince as this young kid named Hezekiah, who's a kid... In the household of Ahaz that's watched his brothers get killed on a Moloch altar. What does that do to a kid when you're one of your best... I mean, obviously, siblings become very good friends, even king's siblings. What does that look like when you see your older brother get w- sacrificed on an altar? And you start getting a few years older, and you're thinking, when is it my turn? First of all, it creates a giant rift between Ahaz and his kids. Hezekiah is nothing like Ahaz. Who trained Hezekiah, Who taught him the word of God? And some people argue that's Isaiah saying, I'm going to put my training and heart into this kid and raise him up. If it wasn't Isaiah, it was one of the sons of the prophet, or it were priests in the temple that were true to God's word. Because when we see Isaiah pop up next, he's a different sort of character, but he saw the worst evil that you could imagine happening in Judah. Ahaz is a wasted king. He's too concerned about the world. He's too weak. He didn't lead. He didn't become an example of righteousness. His sins are that he blew it. So you got Ahaz, the possessor, uh, possessing everything this world could offer, but what he doesn't know is that he loses the sovereignty of Judah in his kingship to the coexist wolves of Assyria, and they're drooling at what's left. And so that's where we leave the kingdom of Judah tonight. Verse 19, now the rest of the acts of Ahaz, which he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? So Ahaz rested with his fathers. He was buried with the fathers in the city of David. And then Hezekiah, his son reigned in his place. Hezekiah, we go from one of the worst kings of Judah's history to the best king that Israel has seen since David. When his, his heart is after the Lord God Almighty, and he's got to face the worst empire the world has ever seen, Assyria. We've never seen, a David and Goliath was nothing compared to the might of Assyria and the, the spread it was happening over this region of the world. In Hezekiah, we got a kid that grows up knowing what right and wrong is. Praise the Lord. Like, this is what we're waiting for. When your country starts to go to pot, wait for what God's going to do next, because it gets amazing, because God won't let his promises die. And so that's a a hope for every Israelite on the planet. Uh, It's a hope for every Jewish person that God has a promise that's unique to the Jewish people, and he's going to follow through on that promise. And so Hezekiah becomes a part of that plan. So that's where we'll pick up next week. That's why we did two chapters tonight. We just wanted to get through as ahaz as quick as possible. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you for the, what we can learn in your word, even from bad examples. Uh, Lord, as, help us to not compromise or think that the, we have something that we need from this, this world of sin. Lord, as we know that there is a battle going on that's spiritual, we know we live in a place where not every influence on our eyes and our ears and our hearts is a good influence. So Lord, help us to do battle with those things unapologetically. Lord, help us to choose for ourselves the good and reject the evil. It's such a simple thing. Lord, help us to be honorable to you knowing that we stand before your face, not anybody else's. Lord, help us to do that boldly and to know that you provide in those situations and you care for your people. You will not Let us go, Lord, and we know that we're in your hands, and we know that your purposes are right and true and just. So use us how you want. We are your servants, and we are your sons and daughters. So, Lord, use us as you will in your kingdom today. Lord, let us be a messenger of Jesus' love and his mercy and his grace while we invite people into the kingdom of God. And, Lord, help us to do that with an urgency that we don't forget that that's our commandment that you've given us. That's our job. So, help us to do that above all things, Lord, and be a blessing to those around us in Jesus' name. Amen.